This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Now, it's become almost customary for people in high-ranking government positions to write memoirs after leaving office, uh, but Beck's story is, uh, is a little different. Uh, she worked in the Obama White House, uh, but not in the upper ranks, not even in the middle ranks. Uh, she was a stenographer. Uh, now, that may be low on the hierarchy ladder, uh, but it's not an insignificant position. White House stenographers are responsible for recording and transcribing interviews, briefings, conference calls, and speeches by the president. It's a job that affords affords contact with the president and frequent interaction with many other uh, White House folks. It also comes with extensive travel on Air Force One uh, around the country and, and around the world. Uh, and it comes with lots of other memorable experiences, as Beck recounts in her new memoir, from the corner of the Oval. Uh, Beck was hired by the White House in 2012 at the age of 26 and stayed for five years just beyond the end of the Obama administration. Her book, as you might expect, contains lots of behind-the-scenes action and stories involving many of the other staffers who worked in the Obama White House. It also offers glimpses of Obama, but a good part of the book Uh, recounts uh, as well Beck's own love life during what turned out to be an emotionally turbulent time for her as she got entangled in an affair with a senior staffer a decade older. This is Beck's first book, but she was a high school English teacher, uh, among various other jobs, uh, before landing at the White House, and she turns out to be a very engaging writer with an authentic conversational voice, an eye for detail, and a great sense of humor. Uh, Beck will be in conversation with a friend of hers, uh, Julie Pace, uh, who is the Washington bureau chief of the Associated Press. Now, Washington is the AP's largest bureau, and Julie has spent a decade in the Capitol covering the White House and presidential campaigns. So, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Beck Dory Stein and Julie Pace. Thank you for coming. Hi, everybody. This is a great crowd. Yeah. Friday night in DC. I know. I love it. Hey. So this is going to be a lot of fun for me. Uh, for both of us. <laughs> because Beck and I logged a lot of miles together during the Obama administration when she was a steno and I was covering the White House. A lot of trips that she writes about in the book, yeah. which were really fun to revisit, though I have to admit it made me definitely question my chops as a reporter because I kept reading it and be like, there was a lot going on in these trips that I did not <laughs> know about. <laughs> so it's a great, very revealing book. I think you guys, um, if you haven't read it already, will really enjoy it. Also, the Daily Briefing every day, Julie Pace. Daily Briefing. AP got the first question. Those so Julie would be in the middle and I would be like this. So maybe we should just do this whole interview. With your microphone in my face. Yeah. Kind of how we lived for several years. Yes. So Beck has the distinction of being the only person that I know who got a job at the White House by answering a Craigslist ad. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. Um, In 2012, I moved to D.C. I was working five part-time jobs. One was at Sidwell Friends part-time. Another was at Lululemon. 
another with the Creamer books. I was sort of all over the place. My boyfriend at the time encouraged me to apply to 10 jobs a day. And so I kind of had like this checkbox. And by the end, you get so tired from writing cover letters that it's like, well, if I apply to a job on Craigslist, I don't have to actually include anything. And so I applied to a job on Craigslist that was for a stenographer at a law firm. And I applied to the job and I actually blew off the interview because my shift at Lululemon ran late and I really wanted to be manager someday. And because of that, I wrote to the person and said, I'm so sorry, I'm actually kind of over, um, overbooked with my five part-time jobs that I don't make rent with. And so she wrote back and I thought she was going to say, you're a horrible person, you're never gonna get hired anywhere. And she said, this is actually a job at the White House and you'd be traveling with the president on all of his domestic and international trips. And my question back was, president of what? Because I had no idea that was so outside my realm of possibility. Is that typical? Do they post these steno jobs on Craigslist? I just think that's so amazing that you could answer a Craigslist ad and then you end up on Air Force One with the President of the United States. So normally, uh, when I talked to the person, uh, when I talked to Bernice in person, she said, we get our people from State Department, you work your way up. But because I had this background as an English major and because I had taught at Sidwell Friends, they assumed I was decent with discretion and okay with grammar, and so I kind of skyrocketed to the top, which made for a very awkward first office Christmas party, because I met this guy who was like, that was supposed to be me. <laughs> I was like, Oops. So you get to the White House, you've answered this Craigslist ad. I know there's no typical day at the White House, but as a stenographer, for people who might not know how this works at the White House, what would, what would an average day be like at the White House and then when you're on the road? So Peggy Suntum, my fearless leader and boss and stoic hero who has been at the White House, she was there for over 30 years. She knows better than I do, but I came in and Peggy would, we would write all of our day's assignments on a whiteboard and oftentimes things would get added or things every once in a while would get canceled because breaking news would happen and something else would get added. And so it was sort of like that where every day we knew we had the daily press briefing. That was sort of our staple. And then a lot of times there were interviews, there were background briefings, they were on the record, they were off the record. And then because things were always a whirlwind, there would be something added last minute that we would run to. So one of the things that I actually learned when I was covering the White House is that the stenographers, even though you're around the president's staff, you're traveling with him, you don't actually work for the president. Like you said, Peggy, you worked for how many presidents or under how many presidents? Five. So you can stay and work for all these presidents. What is that dynamic like, though? You're with President Obama's team all the time. You obviously become close with them, but you don't actually work for him. No, we were very much lone wolves and I came in in 2012 so things were kind of established and so I had to really throw some elbows to make some friends because people were like who's this weirdo? And I'm just like eager eyed. I'm like who wants to be my friend? And so it took a while but eventually it was an open hearted staff and they welcomed me in and eventually I got to hang out with them inside and outside of office hours. We'll talk a little bit more about some of the folks that you worked with uh, but I think everybody who's either worked at the White House or who covers the White House thinks that the travel is the best part and you write a lot about the travel. Tell us about your impressions when you first hit the road. You're, you're in the motorcades, you're in the planes. What is, what's all that like? On the beginning you're just like Ugh! and then I always think of this um, older woman in Malaysia, she worked for the embassy, 
And day one, she took my assigned seat in the press one. I got to sit shotgun. And she just jumps in. And the photogs were the photographers were great. And they were like, hey, that's Beck's seat. And I was so exhausted because it was like stop three. So I was like, just take it, whatever. I'll sit in the back. And I love this story because then by the second day, she was like, you can have your seat back. I'm exhausted. This is not nearly as glamorous as I would have thought. And she just sort of collapsed in the back row. But in the beginning, it's exciting. You're traveling nonstop. It's breakneck. But very quickly, you're exhausted because you are just trying to keep up not only with the news cycle, but also with the president. And as tough as President Obama was, it was also it was all geared towards him. And so we all kind of got caught up in the crossfire of we're trying to keep up. And now we've been sweating together in this van for four hours. And poor Julie Pace doesn't have Wi-Fi. Her Wi-Fi doesn't work. So now her editor's yelling at her. Yeah. Did you have a favorite trip? I think my favorite trip was actually Vietnam, which was in 2016. And we visited Burma in 2012, at the end of 2012, and I had never seen crowds like that. And then what was so cool was fast forward to 2016 in Vietnam, and I turned around to Doug Mills, who had also been in Burma, and he was the New York Times photographer. And I was like, Doug, have you ever seen anything like this? And he was like, I've never seen anything like this. And talk about it. Surprising or impressing a veteran photographer is like the coolest thing that can happen. And just flying into Vietnam and seeing throngs of people like that in 2016 and being like, I just don't want this to ever end and having a full appreciation of that was extremely special. So describe for people when, when you would go on the road with the president, where were you physically when you would go into an event with him? You know, you're in these these bilats or these, you know, cool, uh, you know, OTR off the record stops we've doing. Where where are you in proximity to the president? I'm just like super awkwardly creeping around, <laughs> trying to stay out of everyone's way, but often failing because as a stenographer, we were in charge of audio. We often had to beg outlets for audio. So it was always sort of in the room, but trying to find a corner in the room and trying to be discreet, but also get the job done. There's a lot of photos of Beck sort of like leaning over couches with her yeah. with her microphones yeah. out around Air Force One and the gaggles, which are the small uh, little briefings that they would do, like leaning over the press secretary with microphones. There's also one on Air Force One where... It, during the press gaggles, there was a television right behind Josh Ernest or whoever the press or Jake Carney, the press secretary at the time. And there's one very embarrassing photo where I'm just totally watching the movie behind the reporters. It's a really good movie. Was it a good movie. At least? It was a good movie. <laughs> so I think one other interesting fun fact about Beck is that she and President Obama are probably the only two people who actually brought their workout gear. On Susan the Rice okay. every time. Beck. President Obama and Susan Rice were the only people who brought their workout gear on the road and actually used it. My workout gear saw a lot of countries and very few <laughs> gyms. So you uh, you were very dedicated. Obama was very dedicated to doing this. Do you remember the first time you went to a gym and there was Barack Obama on the treadmill next to you? I do because it was mortifying because <laughs> David Pluff, who to me was very cool. I'd, done, I'd covered a bunch of his background briefings. He was eloquent. He was kind. He was in this gym in Colorado in 2012 and kind of just like checking everything out. And I was like, okay, I have to be really fast because I know he's really fast and I want to impress him. And so I ran more than I planned to and I cooled down and I was just like soaking wet with sweat and slowed down to a walk. 
and I saw the German shepherds come through, which is usually the first sign that the president might come through. And then I saw Secret Service come through, and they put a sign next to my treadmill and the treadmill next to mine that said, treadmill broken. And I was like, they have such good intelligence because no one had even been on that treadmill. And I was like, how do they know these things? But it's Secret Service blew my mind and so then the secret service agent came on and he was like i thought you'd be faster than that and i turned and i'm like i'm gonna say something so smart but i turned and it wasn't a secret service agent it was president obama and he had this twinkle in his eye like i got her and i was not ready and my face just dropped and my mouth dropped and i freaked out and i <laughs> bolted from the room <laughs> And all the Secret Service agents were laughing, chuckling. He thought it was hilarious. I'm totally mortified. And then the worst part is I get to the elevator still sweating. And I'm like, oh, my God, I never wiped down the machine. <laughs> and now he thinks I'm one of those people who doesn't wipe down their machines. <laughs> this though becomes kind of a, a, a th way that you two bond, you and Obama. It becomes kind of a, a running joke between the two of you, right? You're, you're running, your workout habits. Yeah, so if you guys recall, after the first kind of terrible debate with Mitt Romney in 2012 um, President Obama got on the treadmill next to me I was the only one there and I was like okay just respectfully disappear and he said good morning and it was sort of this like respectful like alright back on the horse this is what we do and then in 2016 I think we were in Laos and he gets on the treadmill next to me and this is you know coming towards the end and he's like how do you work this thing because the Laos hotel like was brand new no one had stayed in it before I think they might have built it for him I'm not quite sure that happened yeah and so I had been on the treadmill it had taken me like 20 minutes to figure it out none of these buttons make any sense so he finally turns to me and he's like how do you work this thing and I was like well sir um you kind of have to treat treat it like a bop it where you like turn it twist it and he's just looking at me and his face is slowly just like this girl is so much dumber than I thought like, <laughs> and then I'm just and then of course Secret Service like flocked because they were like something's wrong with the president and so I just disappeared and then the Secret Service agent was like hey Beck um, it wasn't a bop it it was just that the machine was unplugged but that was great <laughs> And then my favorite was at the very end, the last trip, we were on treadmills next to each other, and I was getting off just as he was coming onto his treadmill, and he gave me this twinkle wave, which, if you haven't been stalking the president for your whole career, may not mean much, but he gave me this twinkle wave, and I was like, oh my god, and my heart just melted, because he only gives that twinkle wave to his daughters. So I just like totally flipped down and walked out of the room. Wiped down my machine, though. <laughs> you learned your lesson. Yeah. So it's really clear from the book that you took a lot of notes as you were doing your travels and working at the White House. Was that a, a formal process for you? Is it something you just kind of did on the fly? It's hard to be a good stalker if you don't take notes. Um, no, I've always loved to write since I was a kid. And I taught at a boarding school. I was taking notes there. Um, I think I have some students here. I have notes on you. And when I went to the White House, it was no different, except the stories were a little more thrilling. And so I was writing more emails to my parents and more emails to my friends and also taking notes. And I would wake up and run. And then when you run, my mind kind of expands. So then I'd come home and write that down really quickly while I still had all the endorphins pulsing through me. And it was just sort of one of those things where I was like, even if this is really bad, it's better than not having anything. And then when I sort of would get lazy, some wonderful 
woman in my life like Hopal or Megan Rooney would be like, hey, you get to go see the first sitting president visit a prison. So you're going to write about that, right? And I'd be like, yes, Megan. Absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Was there a point at which you realized I've got all of these notes? Maybe there's a book in this? Yeah, so I thought it would be a fun book of essays where it wasn't about me at all, but it was about a fly on the wall who got to see the way that David Pluff would fold his hands during meetings because I was sort of enthralled with that for a while. And then I got some really great advice from David Remnick at The New Yorker who traveled with us, and he was like, you're such a weirdo. You travel. You got this job on Craigslist. Like you have to include yourself because none of this is believable. And so that's how it sort of went from a funny book of essays about other people to my misadventures in the White House. Was that hard though to put yourself in the story? It was um, painful for a moment, and then it was sort of really fun to talk about DC happy hours and how much I had felt like an outsider. And then it was just kind of it was one afternoon sitting not far from here in Adams Morgan. Uh, just writing all day on a park bench, and then it was up and running. You talked about Hope and Megan and some others. Uh, It's really clear that you had this circle of strong women around you in the White House, uh, most all of whom you didn't know going into it. But it also sounds like there were some kind of tough women. Let's just talk about the heroes for a second. (laughs) But just talk about that dynamic. I think, you know, women in powerful jobs is just something that still is, um, I think, kind of fascinating and really interesting to explore. What What were those kind of two groups like for you? So I will say that I'm the protagonist in the story, but the heroes are the women who mentored me through my five years at the White House. And it was sort of like college on steroids where because I managed to get myself into the White House, I got to meet these fantastically brilliant women who I never would have got to be otherwise. Um, And so that was really special and they're still friends and they're still here supporting me. But I guess I'd turn it back on you, Julie, and say, have you ever had a Rattler in your life? I'm the one asking the questions here, Beck. (laughs) Deflecting like that? absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell people about the Rattler. So the Rattler was an older, a senior staffer who was not especially kind, who was actually intentionally not kind. And I wrote about her only because I think as a young woman, it's very easy to get blindsided by that person because it was someone who I really wanted to admire. And I went in and I was like, this is gonna be my role model. And I was so devastated to find out she really wasn't so great and she went out of her way to make me feel unimportant and like I didn't matter and like I wasn't part of the team when all I wanted to do was prove myself to be part of the team. And I wrote about her mostly because for a hot second, I let her sort of dominate my narrative. And then the longer I was there, the more I was like, oh wait, but Susan Rice is like the ultimate badass and she's always really nice to me and she always goes out of her way to talk to me. So I wrote about the Rattler only as a sort of foil for all of the really great women who were also senior staff and middle staff who went out of their way to be kind and to mentor. Have you uh, had any contact with the Rattler since you left the administration? I mean, she never said hi to me from the beginning, so no, nothing has changed. (laughs) So as we mentioned, the stenographers stay when the president, the outgoing president, is leaving. Uh, So when all of your friends and your coworkers are moving out, you're still there. What are those last couple days, last couple weeks of the Obama administration like for you from your perspective? If you have ever graduated from 
college or high school or sent a child away to summer camp or been a child sent away to summer camp, it is all of those feelings wrapped into one where you are saying goodbye to your best friends and you can't totally wrap your mind around it being the end and yet it is the end and it is just beyond heartbreaking. It is like a collective community breakup that no one wanted. It's also strange because you stay and everything around you physically changes, yeah. right? I mean, talk about just how fast that all happens. I mean, it's basically when Voldemort comes back. At least that was my experience where it was like, oh, the good guys are here. Oh, it's the Death Eaters. The Death Eaters have taken over. And I can't make eye contact with anyone because I don't know whose team who's on. So I went to Mar-a-Lago once and there was like a big television and <laughs> in the lobby of the hotel and there's some remark it's like Trump on replay and I'm just staring like jaw dropped and some guy walks by who's like careful how much you watch or you might start believing it and I'm like are you a good are you a good witch or a bad witch I don't know and so I just walked away <laughs> so you stayed in the Trump administration for how long I stayed for two months which was two months too long but it was also important to kind of see it, except for when my friends from home, they were like, we just had a baby girl. Tell us it's not that bad. I was like, oh, it's not that bad. It's so much worse. We're all <laughs> well, what was it like for you, though, watching, watching a new administration come in? My first day in the Trump administration was the Sunday after inauguration. And I had actually stayed at home the day of inauguration because I couldn't force myself to go in. So I stayed and I typed up his speech which was really difficult especially because all of my friends went to the tarmac to say goodbye to President Obama and I had to physically stay and type the new president's remarks and those were not light-hearted remarks so I was like what is going on here and then the Sunday after was my first day back on campus and I walked through the West Wing and it was heartbreaking to walk through and all of these offices that had been occupied by these stellar minds and great friends of mine, they were suddenly empty because they hadn't staffed properly or occupied by someone who was freaking out because they hadn't learned anything during the transition because the, the Trump team had basically gone out of their way to not coordinate with the Obama team during transition. So no one had no had any idea what they were doing. And there was also a ton of yelling, which I wasn't anticipating. Yelling? Yeah. It was like being from a broken home, but I'm not from a broken home. But I was like, this is what it must be like. So was your plan to just do a couple months and get out or was there a point where you thought you might be able to stick it out for a while? The very personal silver lining of Trump winning was that when he won in November, I was sort of like, this is my moment to break free. And I was excited to see um, Hillary Clinton take office and see what that would be like, the, the changes, the differences. And when Trump won, I was like, oh, so anything can happen in this universe. And if Trump can be president, I can certainly take my writing more seriously than I have been. And so that was the kind of the ultimate incentive to be like, it's now or never, especially with North Korea. <laughs> We're going to take some questions from the audience. There are two mics on either side. Um, so if you want to start lining up, um, we'll start we should say something questions. more hopeful, though. We shouldn't well, end well, on no, North Korea. Well, I don't I don't actually know if this is going to be hopeful or not, okay. but I'm going to ask it anyways. And if it's not, I'll make something else up and then we'll. 
get to a hopeful place. You are pretty clear in the book, at least in the start of the book, that you are not a fan of Washington when you arrive. So happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. And you are certainly not somebody who comes from a political background. You didn't you didn't strive to be in the White House, even though you end up there. And I'm curious, at the end of your time at the White House, what your feelings about Washington, sort of people who work in politics, ended up being. So one of the great full or not is this? <laughs> no, we're good. We're good. We're good. Um, so one of the great gifts of getting to work at the White House was I had this very cynical view of like, oh my god, they're all so greasy, and then getting to see the Obama team up close, it was like, oh my god, they work so hard, and I like. I was an English teacher for a bunch of 14 year olds and they work really hard. Even compared to teachers, they work super hard and they are giving up their personal lives. They are getting in a lot of trouble with their spouses because they're never home. Their kids have forgotten their names because they just haven't shown up for three birthdays in a row. Everyone who worked at the White House was so unbelievably dedicated and hardworking and smart and trying to balance so much on behalf of the American people that that was part of the reason why I felt like I needed to write this book was because everyone was working so hard in the previous administration. <laughs> so what I learned also coming out of that is that there's a ton of idealism and it's important to stay optimistic. I learned from President Obama, cynicism didn't land a man on the moon, hope did. And so it's important to kind of keep that with us and it's important to stay engaged and to read the news and to figure out who's representing you every day, locally, regionally. I think that did end up being a hopeful answer. Yeah. All right, we've got two microphones over here on either side. You guys want to line up and start taking some questions? Start right over here. Hello. Oh, well, number one, uh, did you just in these two months uh, until you got it up to here, uh, did you have any interaction with anybody in the media? Kellyanne, uh, uh, Sarah Huckabee, oh, uh, did Paul I? Picks? Sure. Let's start uh, with Kellyanne. to tell us about it. <laughs> uh, I had a very brief interaction with Kellyanne where she walked by in her sweet skeletal self and smiled. And then followed, following her was Sean Spicer, who was so angry. And I don't know what his problem was that day, but I, I was just sort of trying to be cordial to everyone. So I was there and I said hi to Kellyanne. She smiled. She was great. And then Sean Spicer was like, if I were three feet taller, I'd punch you in the face. And that was my interaction with Sean Spicer. Luckily, he wasn't tall enough. Hope Hicks? Hope Hicks, sure. Hope Hicks kind of ran the show. And my big interaction with her that I often think about is she was sort of the coordinator for everything. Her office was in the outer, the, the outer oval. And so she had a lot of power and influence. And I covered the Bill O'Reilly interview a few weeks in. And I was particularly taken with the fact that I was there ready to record. And with President Obama, it was like he would come in, he would do the interview, he'd leave. He had a lot of other things to do and he wanted to be transparent with the press, but he also wasn't president to please the press. He was trying to serve the American people. And what struck me with that interview is that Hope Hicks came down and she said, Bill, the president would like to see you in the Oval Office before we do this interview. And I was like, that's kind of weird. And then an hour went by and then they both came down after spending an hour of the sitting president's time talking about who knows what, ratings, I guess. And then they came down and did the interview. And that really blew my mind just because during the Obama administration, there was a consistent, incessant awareness of this is the sitting president's time, so we are not wasting a single second of it. And instead, this was like, oh, let's just waste all of the time. 
So that's hope picks. <laughs> so also speaking of Trump. Hope was asking about Beck's time with President Trump. Himself. Hope Hall, not Hope Hicks. <laughs> hope Hicks in the front row, everyone. <laughs> um, I did travel to Mar-a-Lago once, and it was not my best weekend, but I got on the plane. Fox News was blasting from every television, which was a strange thing right there. Uh, President Obama taught me to always just read the news, not to necessarily watch the news, kind of be in control of your destiny and not get caught up in the hot-headedness. And so I get on the plane and it's just Fox News blasting so I can't even think straight. Luckily, the flight attendants are active duty military members. They are incredible. They are your best friends. They are the mother that you may or may not have had, but you always wish you had. They are just wonderful. Yeah. And... So I get on and Christy, the flight attendant, is like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm not okay. And she quickly brings me a beverage. And uh, pretty soon, uh, President Trump comes through. He's supposed to be giving Melania Trump a tour of the plane. It's her first time on Air Force One. And he somehow gets lost. It's a straight aisle, straight shoot. It's like any other plane. Uh, you can go from top to bottom in under a minute. But somehow he came, he diverged from the path and came over to my little cul-de-sac seat and just stood there. And so I hopped up onto my feet. He's the sitting president. I get up. I learned from President Obama, like always give them a, some space. So I took a step back and then he took a step directly into my personal space, which was not surprising. It was horrific but not surprising and he said hello and I said hi sir and he went hello and I was like oh we're on an episode of Teletubbies <laughs> wonderful <laughs> and then I looked at Melania to see if she could get her deranged husband in order and she couldn't she looked at the ground and luckily then a, a younger staffer came and grabbed him and said I think you meant to go to the back of the plane and I was like yeah just stick to the path that was your only trip with President Trump um I that, that was my over my only overnight trip. I got I got out of there pretty quickly. So while people line up to ask more questions, talk about Air Force One itself because I I think it is um, both extraordinary and also really ordinary <laughs> a lot of the time. How do you think it's ordinary? Because I think it's um, you know it's it's a plane still, right? It's not it's not as jaded Julie. It's not as fancy as you as I think I thought it would be. It's a military plane. I think they've updated it. I saw they have individual televisions in the press plane. No, they don't. Yeah, in the press cabin, they have individual televisions. God, yeah, too long. Yeah, you dropped out too early. Um, no, I think it's an extraordinary plane if for no other reason than you drive right onto the tarmac. And the coolest part, I always think about this, is the first time I drove on, I was like, oh my gosh, that's it. And then my, <laughs> my colleague sitting next to me was like, that's not it. And because it was like a normal size plane, but I was just really excited because it was blue and white. And then we like drove further and I was like, that's it. And she was like, that's not it. And then we turned another corner and she was like, that's it. And it was honestly just like angels singing and it was huge and just majestic. And I was not nearly as jaded as Julie Pace because I was really impressed. And then it's so cool because the Ravens, the Air Force One Ravens, like know your name after just a few trips. And they're like, Miss Dory Stein, head right up. And you get a name card and you know where to sit. And everyone's really kind. And then they start like, you know, carrying Kahlua on the plane if they know you like white Russians. It's just a wonderful experience. There's a difference between being in the press and being on the staff. <laughs> I brought my own bottle of Kahlua. They just kept it for me. Smart. You have a question over here. Hi. Hi. I have not read your book. Uh, but There's you still time. 
Did you have any interaction with Valerie Jarrett? I did, and she was lovely. I remember talking to her early on because she is so well-spoken and calm, and I found myself in an elevator. She was actually also a pretty routine worker owner, but she She just got up even earlier. I think she is a bad A blank blank yeah okay. i do too you are and accurate everybody's shiro yes and i'm glad to hear you say that she was wonderful now when you went th- when you went there don't you know that you were fully investigated before you ever stepped anywhere near uh the president's uh entourage offices I was fully Whatever. investigated before I got to step near his daughter's entourage. Uh-huh, I'm sure. So because I had taught at Sidwell Friends, I'd already had the FBI background check, which okay. was part of my appeal. That That's what I assumed. Yes. Okay, okay. Thank you very much, yeah. and I will read your book. Wait, so that was just to make sure I got proper clearance? Uh-huh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Been there. Wanted Absolutely. to verify this book before I started reading it. Well, that too. <laughs> that too. I mean, you you know, you seem pretty wise, and uh, absolutely, we have to do That's what, what they have. always say about me. So wise. we have to do what we have to do. Yes. Well, okay. thank you. I a hope woman you read has it. To do what a woman has to do. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Okay. Thank you. Oh, Jennifer Close, I have two a fellow questions. writer. Yeah. Um, so I have two questions. If yes. That's okay. Yes, madam. Um, the first line of your book is like one of the best first lines I think I've ever read. It's amazing. If anyone just flips to the first page, there's no way you wouldn't keep reading it. What's the line? On nights like, I'm going to get it wrong, but on nights like tonight, I wait for the voice of God. Oh, yeah. What's the line? No, I, I wasn't <laughs> sure if you meant the prologue. Oh, or the, that one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was just wondering sort of when that came to you and how the book sort of took shape. And then my second question, which you can answer or not, is um, what you're working on now. Sure. Uh, the first line from the book is uh, the prologue, which takes place during the end of the Obama administration in January of 2017 is on a night like this, I wait for the voice of God. And I thought of it last summer, mostly because we are trying to think of a way, because you can't just jump into the rosy retrospection of the Obama administration. You have to kind of like grapple with the reality. And so I wanted to have something that was a little more serious and so many of our nights, as Peggy can attest to, are waiting in an office by yourself. No one is like, great job, Steno. Like, everyone has gone home for the night. And you're just there and you're like, all right, do three bags of Cheetos from the vending machine count as dinner? Or can I get gummy bears for dessert? Like, how does this work? And so I was just lying on a couch for hours waiting for President Obama to begin his remarks. And the voice of God is actually just what we call... The, pers- the anonymous person who announces the president when there isn't a formal announcer. And I l- always loved that because I was like, it's so, like, you'll be in the press pool and they'll be like, oh, is the voice of God come on yet? And you're like, that is like such a serious thing to say, but you get so used to it. And it's like, voice of God, like, where is he? It's just, so I love the idea of, and that's so much of, that encapsulates so much about the book, is just sort of this, reverence mixed with irreverence and kind of figuring out where you fall into it all. Oh, and the second thing about what I'm writing next, it's a, it, I, I totally lucked down. It's a two book deal. So I get to write about whatever I want next and it will not be about my personal life. <laughs> so it's a win. We have a question over here. I, I thought it'd be best to speak to you from the left. Hello, sir. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, my, my question has to do with uh, Trump's uh, accusation of fake news. I guess either one of you can answer that. What do you <laughs> what do you think of that? And what do you think the uh, 
ultimate consequence of putting that kind of thought into the ether will be for this democracy? So as stenographers, we had a really interesting job because we were not tied to the administration. We were really tied to almost playing referee where it was like, this is what was said. For better or for worse, this is what was said. And that was true during the Obama administration. That was true the whole time I was there. And so it struck me, especially recently with the news, um, as crazy that this president feels like he can call it fake news when it's like, hey, there's a transcript, or there could be if he wanted one. And so that's a really quick way to just answer the question of what's fake and what's true. And the fact that he doesn't often say, please refer to the official White House transcript as the Obama press secretaries tended to do. You just shut that down right there. It's, this is what was said, this is the context of it. And so the fact that that often is not the case in present day is more a reflection of him and what he values more than anything else. And as far as the democracy goes, I often just think about what President Obama would say, which is, you know, you just have to stay optimistic. You have to keep focusing on what we can actually control. And so I think we will get to where we want to go. It just might take a little longer because we let this happen. Yeah. You're welcome. Julie, you, you should add, you should weigh in. This is a fake news question. Uh, just very quickly, I'll say that uh, <laughs> um, I think it's incredibly dangerous when you have a president who's trying to discredit the news media, which is there to not uh, represent our own interests, but to be the conduit from powerful people to the public. So I think that's incredibly dangerous. I think it's incredibly dangerous when he does it overseas in countries where the media is under more attack than they are here. Um, at the same time, um, I can say, and some of our friends from the press corps are here too, it's not stopping us. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't get us down. I mean, we're working as hard as ever Go and press. we're going to do it no matter what. All right, do we have any other questions for Beck before you buy her fabulous book, which she's going to be signing for folks up here? So, um, Beck, Beck, did you have to sign any kind of NDA, non-disclosure agreement? It would be so awkward if I had. No, luckily when you work at the White House, you don't have to sign one. It's just sort of everyone trusts you. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, so I, mean, the, the, I mean, I think the book that you wrote makes a great contribution to understanding, you know, from, uh, what goes on from a perspective that we don't often hear from, as I said in my opening remarks, we often hear from you know high-level officials who leave, um, but your your perspective is is different and and really adds to the whole picture. But what what are your thoughts about going to work in a place like the White House, and then coming out and writing a book about that? What what what, how, what lines did you draw? So I had um, the great luxury of never even having looked at a single piece of classified information. That's how important I was. And so I actually spoke with Obama counsel before and during and after writing this book. And that was exactly what she said. She was like, Beck, you didn't? You didn't even have, what? Who are you? Like, you were, you were extremely unimportant. And so I really lucked out in that regard as far as not feeling like um, I had trespassed anyone. And the person who I feel most loyal to is President Obama. And that's only because he really earned that loyalty over the course of five years. When I began there, I kind of, 
froze dead in my tracks on my way to work the first day because I was like, what if he's just one more guy who seems great on television and isn't great up close? And within two seconds of being in the room with him, I'm like, oh, he's totally like my favorite college professor I never actually got to have because he was too popular and I always got closed down in those classes. Um, he was thoughtful, he was kind, he was extremely generous with his time, he respected every single person in the room. And so the beauty of getting to write this book was that I got to write about him as truthfully as I could, and it only reflected well in him. The, the, the other question I had is, when, when David Remnick suggested that you put more of yourself into the book, it meant, I guess, then writing about your love life. I mean, yeah. that's where it led. He's so into juicy gossip, yeah. it's crazy. So, 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 so that wasn't part of your original plan, I guess. No, he also didn't know about that. He was like, whoa. Right, right. But so, so talk a little bit about the decision to you know, lay it all out. I think as soon as I knew I had to write about my life, there was no way to sort of isolate, okay, and I'm going to write about this and not write about this. I'm sort of whole hog or nothing. And so I thought it was important, especially I had taught high school English before this. I often thought about what it would be like if my younger sister had gotten this job on Craigslist or one of my former students. And I thought it was actually really important for young women to think about, okay, even if my job is not at the White House, my first or second or third job might be in an office place where a charming man is, says the perfect things and then you know you throw in a rainstorm in Vietnam and everything goes out the window but like the whole point is that I wanted to share all of it because I don't think that story has been shared often enough and there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and I was so mad at myself for five years and actually in writing this book it was like oh connecting the dots I can totally see how this would happen and I think that's actually part of what your 20s are for is navigating those roadblocks and those trap doors and those tricky situations that you're so angry with at the moment and then you find really great friends and they kind of help you get out of it. Did you tell people that you would be writing about them? I told the ones I liked. <laughs> it's fair, yeah. Is there anything that you wanted to put in the book but you, you didn't either because you, didn't, you wanted to keep it private for yourself or you worried about... Um, about the person that it was about and how it would reflect on them? No. Um, I think that, so the book was actually twice as long and my editor was like, what are you trying to do? And it was, a lot of the stories were actually, I had a great interaction with Charles Barkley who, I'm from Philadelphia, so it was like this big moment and my editor was like, this doesn't drive the narrative forward. And I was like, but it's Charles Barkley. <laughs> so it was actually a lot of stories like that where I got to inter I got to interact with a bunch of celebrities and my editor was like, this does not make you a normal person. I was like, but Macklemore was really nice and Derek Jeter was super nervous, it's cute. And she's like, no, cut it. So no, it was more of those things that got cut. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming. This has been a ton of fun to get to catch so up with back. Thank you for coming. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.